And let's pray before we open the word together this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in need. We are in desperate need of your holy word. There are so many voices that sound within us. There are so many voices in our culture and in the world around us. We confess that we often grow deaf to your voice. We need you to speak clearly to us this morning. We need a voice from on high, a voice that is authoritative, a voice that is true, a voice that does not waver, a voice that we can trust. So we thank you for this holy living word, and we pray that as it is read and as it is preached this morning, we would know from where it comes. that our hearts and our minds would hear their Maker speaking to them, and that we would exalt you, our holy God. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 42, this is the holy and errant word of God. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, teacher... We wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. We live in an odd age. As I uh, mentioned a few weeks ago as we were looking at a text, we live in a secular age that for the first time in human history is secular in the sense that you and I are encouraged and even exhorted to believe that there is not a God. This is the first time in human history that There has been such an encouragement, such the freedom to do, to believe that no God exists. And that has given rise to an even more surprising phenomenon, and that is the phenomenon of celebrity atheists. It's an odd thing. People that are famous simply for what they don't believe. There will be... Celebrity atheists that tour the Western world, we've had some recently at Michigan State that will show up and, and they will speak, and people will pay to go listen to them speak. Uh, imagine a person gathering together their friends and saying, let's go listen to this lecture, and a friend says, well, what is this lecture about? 
And he says, well, it's someone that's going to share what they don't believe in. And how much does this cost? It costs $40 to hear what they don't believe in. It's an odd day where someone can be a celebrity for what they don't believe in. Maybe on the other end of the spectrum, it's just as odd that we can have the celebrity of the Kardashians and we can have the celebrity of atheists on the same plane. But this is the age that we live in. Strange times. Let me read you a quote from two of the more prominent atheist celebrities. The first is from Sam Harris, who is an atheist philosopher and author. And he said this, he said, Tell a devout Christian that his wife is cheating on him or that frozen yogurt can make a man invisible, and he is likely to require as much evidence as anyone else. However, tell him that the book he keeps by his bed was written by an invisible deity who will punish him for eternity if he fails to accept every incredible claim about the universe, and he seems to require no evidence whatsoever. There are more problems with this quote than I can address this morning, but Harris's contention is that the Christian faith is, as he says, that it floats entirely free of reason and evidence, end quote. That is a foolish assertion. Richard Dawkins, maybe the most famous celebrity atheist, commented this. He said, if God existed and wanted to convince us of it, he could fill the world with super miracles. And therefore, Dawkins is inferring that God doesn't exist because he doesn't, in Dawkins' view, fill the world with super miracles saying there is no reason to believe. What do we say to such accusations? What do you say to such arguments that people make? Is the Christian faith floating, as Harris says, entirely free of reason and evidence? No. This is simply the folly of mankind. What I want to look at first this morning from this text, our first point, the, the folly of mankind. The problem isn't where these atheist celebrities place it. It's not in the lack of evidence. It's in the man. We see it in our text this morning. The scribes and the Pharisees, these religious elites, they approach Jesus and they they say to him, O oh, teacher, as if they are complimenting him, but you know that it is said in sarcasm because they've already made up their minds about Jesus. They say, O oh, teacher, we want a sign from you. They, they demand a sign. Now we must remember that Jesus has performed sign after sign. He has performed miracle after miracle in their presence. They've seen it. In fact, just right before this, he did a miraculous sign. You remember that man that was deaf and that was mute? He cast the demon out of that man, and that man was able to speak. And yet, you'll remember what the response of the Pharisees was. They said that Jesus did this because he was in league with Beelzebul, with Satan. They didn't believe. And the Pharisees' lack of belief wasn't because they lacked evidence for that belief. And neither is anyone else's reason for not believing because of a lack of evidence. 
That's never the problem. These Pharisees feign that if only Jesus would do a sign upon their command that they would believe in him, but they had already hardened their hearts. We see that if you look back to chapter 12, verse 14, we see there that the Pharisees, quote, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And as Jesus said back in chapter 11, if he had done the signs and he had done the miracles in Tyre and Sidon that he had done in front of this generation, in front of these Jews, in front of these Pharisees, Tyre and Sidon would have believed. It wasn't a lack of signs. There was a lack of willingness to believe the signs. Like a child that is in front of a cookie jar and asks for one cookie and you give them the cookie and then they... They ask for one more, and so you give them another. And they ask for another, and so you say, well, when will be enough? And they say, well, just one more. Just one, one more. Just one more according to our liking. Just one more in number. Then I will believe. That's the foolishness of men. Think of how often objection to Christ is answered or an accusation about Christ is answered or a question about Christ is answered. And then there's just one more question that must be answered before I believe. Heart is deceitful above all else, Jeremiah tells us. Why do people not believe? Because the lost sinner doesn't want to believe. That's our folly. Thomas Nagel, a former Harvard philosophy professor and one of these celebrity atheists, he was at least honest when he said this. He said, I speak from experience, being strongly subject to the sphere of religion myself. Some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want a universe to be like that. This is true folly. And this is the true folly of mankind. We don't want there to be a God. Or at least we don't want the God of the Scriptures. We want a God that we can control a God of our making, a God that we can make demands of and He answers according to our will. Just like these Pharisees here in this text, they want to be able to control. He wasn't what they expected, and He wasn't what they wanted. And that is always the sin that is at the root for disbelief, for unbelief. That's not the God I want. That's not the God I expected. That's not the God I desire. Like these modern atheists, we're blind to our own hearts. And so we excuse ourselves by saying, I just need more evidence. I need reason to believe. And though faith doesn't generate from Reason, it's not opposed to it. Reason is not an enemy of faith. 
It is an ally of faith. And so Jesus then says, well, let's talk about the reasons to believe. And that's our second point, the firmness of our faith. Jesus is not opposed to providing evidence for who he is and for our faith. He, he does so time and again. In fact, this is one of the main reasons that he does these miracles. This is one of the main reasons that he provides healings and that he casts out demons. Peter makes that point in Acts 2 when he is standing there at Pentecost and he's preaching to all of those Jews and he says this, he says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. He's saying you were there, you saw it, you saw the miracles that he did, you witnessed it. And each of those miracles that he performed, they were like a witness that was called up to the stand one after another saying he is who he says he is. He healed the blind man. He is who he says he is. He multiplied the bread. He is who he says he is. He cast out the demons. He is who he said he is. Just witness after witness. But these Pharisees, they didn't have enough. They wanted more. And so Jesus says, well, I'll provide you the greatest evidence. A sign that has evidence that is so great that it should soften even the most hardened of sinners. But before we look at that great sign which speaks to the firmness of our faith, I don't want us to miss the inference that Jesus makes in our text. Our faith is firmly established upon the foundation of the Word. The foundation, as Paul will say, upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Many will balk at the Christian faith because of the stories in the Bible. They seem unreasonable. They seem unbelievable. But Jesus wants us to see that the firmness of our faith is based upon the truthfulness of the Scriptures, that they are a, a sure foundation for you and I, the, these Bibles that we hold in our hands. It's the foundation of our faith. And he infers that by looking back to Jonah. Jonah, this prophet of God who was called to go to the city of Nineveh and was to preach to these sinners the need for repentance, and yet Jonah didn't want to go because he knew that God was a merciful God and he didn't want to see those people repent. And so Jonah runs off and he jumps on that ship to Tarshish, and you'll remember that God causes a storm upon the sea and Jonah is then cast into the waters and then he is swallowed by that great fish, and after three days, then he is spit out upon dry ground. Here was a prophet back from the dead, from the belly of a great fish. We have a saying in English where we say, well, that is a whale of a tail. And it probably comes from this. You say, that, that is so fanciful, so grand in scope, that, that that can't be real. That can't actually be true. Could a man actually be swallowed by a fish and survive for three days and then be spit out on dry ground? It seems against all reason. And you add to that all these other things in the Old Testament Scriptures. You have God creating everything out of nothing. You have this Noahic flood and Noah, Noah upon this ark. You have manna falling from heaven. You have Daniel in the lion's den. You have Adam created from the dust and Eve created from his side. And you say... All of this, really. 
miracles which just seem absolutely hard to believe. And here's the folly of men. It's on full display here. Like Dawkins said, if God existed and wanted to convince us of it, He could fill the world with super miracles. We would believe God if the world was filled with super miracles, He's saying. And He did. Miracle after miracle. And yet, when those super miracles occur, we say they are unreasonable and they can't be true. It isn't a lack of evidence that keeps us from Christ. It's the hardness of our hearts. But understand the foundation Jesus is assuring us and asserting here in the text that our faith is firm because it's upon this firm word of God. I want to be absolutely clear about this. Jesus understands these miracles and all the teachings of the Scriptures to be true. They're true. These are true historical events. Jesus is arguing from this passage, from the historical event of Jonah, that as Jonah was in the belly of that fish for three days, so he himself would be in the belly of the earth for three days. He's making an historical argument. He's saying it's true. Jesus so believes in the authority of the Old Testament Scripture so believes that every story is true and that every part of grammar is true that he will often make arguments just purely from the grammar. You remember when the Sadducees are before him and they don't believe in a resurrection and Jesus will argue with them based upon the grammar of the Old Testament. He'll say, have you not read and do you not understand? That God said, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. What is Jesus doing? He's making an argument from a verb tense. He's saying, God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. No, I am. It's present tense. They're living. He's the God of the living. Jesus believed in the complete unadulterated authority and inerrancy of the Old Testament Scriptures. He didn't waver. There's no such thing as simply a New Testament Christian. If we confess disbelief in the Old Testament, we confess disbelief in Jesus. If we disbelieve these events and miracles of the Old Testament, we aren't simply disbelieving the Bible's understanding of history. We're disbelieving Christ's understanding of history. And if He is wrong, He can't be the Christ. And if He isn't the Christ, then Christianity is built upon sand. When we believe the Old Testament Scriptures, when we believe the Scriptures, we are on solid, solid, firm ground. God has chosen to reveal Himself by the Word. And it's a firm foundation for our faith. So many want signs. If only I could see this or could see that, I would believe. And Jesus says, you have the Word. Jonah goes to Nineveh and he preaches to complete and utter pagans. All they got was the word and they believed. 
The queen of the south comes up to Solomon. And why does she come up to Solomon? Just to hear his words. And she believes. He says, you have the word. You have something even greater. You have me. The living word. You say, I need more evidence. I need greater reason to believe. Jesus says, I'll give and provide the greatest. The scriptures are the foundation of our faith, with Christ being the chief cornerstone. And if he is the chief cornerstone, then his resurrection is the capstone. Our faith is a faith firm upon the foundation of the word and the focal event of the resurrection. Jesus tells them that they will see the great sign, the resurrection of the Son of Man, the focal event. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so Jesus would be in the belly of the earth for three days. And as Jonah emerged from death to life after three days, so even more so, Jesus will emerge from death to life after three days. Some struggle with this here, and they say, well, Jesus wasn't actually in the grave for three days. He died on Friday, he rose on Sunday Well, in the New Testament world and in the Old Testament world, if it was part of a day, it counted as a day. Three days, three nights. The resurrection is the greatest evidence that our faith is true. It's the focal event. What greater evidence could there be? What greater reason for belief? Could there be? What greater sign could there be than the resurrection? And Jesus says there's none. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 asserts that the entire Christian faith hinges upon the resurrection. In fact, he says that if Christ hadn't raised from the dead, that we of all people on the face of the earth, those who have placed their faith and their hope in Christ, are to be the most pitied upon all the earth. Why? Because if he didn't rise from the grave, the entire Christian faith is a lie. The entire Christian faith is a sham. But if Jesus rose from the grave, then the Christian faith is true. And what a firm faith we can have. What evidence for your foolish hearts, Jesus is asking? He says, I have no qualms about providing evidence for your faith, but it's going to be on my terms. And the resurrection is the greatest evidence you can ever have. Who in the history of mankind has ever prophesied that they would die and be buried, and then they die as they prophesied and they're buried? Well, you say, well, maybe a couple. Well, maybe a couple. But there's none that go the step further that prophesy not only that they will die and the way in which they will die and they will be buried, but three days later that they will be raised from the grave. There's none like that. You can orchestrate a lot of things, but not that. There is nothing more final than death. There's no power more sure in the world than death. No one escapes it, though everyone tries. Not even the most powerful kings who have ever lived could triumph over death. But here is one who prophesies that he will, and then he does. What greater evidence could there be? What greater evidence could he provide? 
And then there is evidence upon evidence after that. Luke says in Acts 1-3 that Jesus, quote, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, it was prophesied appeared to Cephas, that is to Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. That's Paul exhorting his New Testament readers to say, look, they're still alive. You have doubts about Jesus raised from the grave. He appeared before hundreds of people, and they're still alive. Go ask them. Go check it out. Go ahead. You can verify it. This is written to people that still live at that time. Notice that he appeared not just in a day, but in 40 days. And you might be able to find one person that would lie about this. You might be able to find two people that would lie about something like this, like the accusers of Jesus. But hundreds of people to lie about this. Most of them seen him over the course of weeks in different times, all agreeing that they saw the risen Christ. Even the most seasoned skeptic, if coming to the evidence with an open mind, would have to believe that this is historical fact. You say, okay, but Give me a reason, but now I need a reason to trust that these reports are true. Again, the questions never stop. But consider how the Gospels present Jesus' death and resurrection. He was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a religious elite, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Everybody knew him by name. And the Gospels are clear that Jesus was buried in his tomb. You can go check it out. You know who Joseph is. It's a historical fact. And then you take that the gospel accounts that they have the eyewitnesses, the first eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ are women. No one in their right mind making up a story in the first century world would write that women were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection because the word of women was not trusted. But why is it that every gospel writes this? Because it's fact. Because that's how it occurred, so that's how it was reported. And then you have the disciples. You have these 11 remaining disciples who are so convinced by what they have seen that they go out and they preach that this Jesus is resurrected from the grave. And notice that they didn't all see the resurrected Christ in the same moment if they had. We might say that it was possible that they were caught up in their emotions or that it was some kind of religious hysteria. But he appears to them on different occasions in different places. And they are so convinced by what they have seen, who they have seen, that they go out and they proclaim his resurrection at the cost of their own lives. And they do so without any, any promise of earthly benefit. In fact, they do so with the promise of earthly pain and sorrow and death. 
They aren't like the purveyors of Islam who gained land and wealth. They aren't like the prophets of Mormonism who gained prestige and wives. For a disciple of Christ to preach that he was Messiah resurrected from the grave meant the loss of their Jewish family. It meant the loss of their Jewish culture. It meant the loss of their businesses. It meant the loss of their wealth. In many ways, it meant the loss of their identity. He received no land, no position, no riches. These first disciples received nothing but death. They will all die a martyr's death except the Apostle John, and he will die in exile. And yet, they kept preaching, and they kept believing unto the end. What drives such zeal? Truth. They knew what they had seen. Truth. They'd seen the resurrected Christ and they had to tell others. They knew the firmness of our faith. In Dawkins' words, it is a super miracle. In fact, it is the super miracle. No one prophesies their own death, their own burial, and their own resurrection and actually secures it except the Son of God. None. We have a firm faith. It isn't for a lack of evidence that there is unbelief in the world. And our final point, the finality of the resurrection. Jesus says, no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. That is, there is a finality in the resurrection. Nothing greater could be provided, so nothing greater will be provided. As the writer of Hebrews says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us through His Son. The Son is the final word. And His resurrection is the capstone of that final word. It's the climax of His pronouncement. He's the Son of God. The Savior coming to the world. If you're looking for something more, you won't find it. If you're looking for something greater, you won't find it. This is it. He triumphed over death. So say this to the Christian this morning. You don't have a blind faith. People often talk about faith that way, as if it is blind, as if it is a step off into nothingness. You don't have a blind faith. We have a very reasonable faith. Now, your faith isn't caused by reason. But reason is an ally to your faith. There is reason to believe and to keep on believing. You can have confidence as you go out into the world and as you share the gospel and as you proclaim the gospel to people. And people point at you and say, you are such a fool. How could you believe something like this? 
quite reasonable. It's more reason to believe than, I dare say, anything else that is believed out there. You have all the confidence. It is not you that is the fool. And so you're not to be ashamed of the gospel, as Paul says. You're to boldly proclaim it. It is the hearts and minds of men that are foolish. It is not the gospel you proclaim. So you do so with confidence. And you don't shrink back. So the skeptic in the room would say, test the evidence. Test it. Believe the Christian faith can stand up against any any test it is subjected to. Test it. I have no qualms saying that. Bring any argument you want to bear upon it. It can stand. Bring any so-called evidence you can to bear upon it. It can stand. Think about two of the more famous people to do this in the 20th century. Think about Lee Strobel, who was a investigative reporter, an atheist, didn't believe in Christ and decided he would set out to disprove the resurrection. He understood that the Christian faith stood or fell upon the resurrection. And so he goes out to disprove it and begins to do an investigative search into it, and he doesn't want to believe. Yet he finds at the end of all his investigative reporting that he can't help but believe. Think of C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest minds of the 20th century, says he did the same thing. He didn't believe. He didn't want to believe. Yet he sets his mind uh, looking and inquiring into the Christian faith because he knows a lot of incredibly intelligent people that believe what he thought was a myth. And how could such intelligent people believe something that seems so silly? And yet he says this, he says, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnest, so earnestly desired not to meet. He says in one of those nights in that room, this God he so badly wanted to disprove met him. He couldn't disprove him. And he had to believe. To the stubborn in the room, say you cannot make God after your own liking. You can't make Christ after your own liking like these Pharisees were attempting to do. You must take him as he is. He won't come on your terms. He doesn't work like that. You must come on His terms. And His terms are that you surrender everything. All your pride, all your ego, all your self-confidence, all your self-righteousness, and that you simply look to Him in faith. He is the Son of God who came into this world to save not the righteous, but sinners. 
It's not the self-righteous that find him, but the sinner. This one who was prophesied that he would come, this one who was prophesied that he would die, this one who was prophesied that he would be buried, and this one who was prophesied that he would be raised on the third day and was and did by his own power. There's none like him. You have every reason to believe. Every reason. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful that you are a God who has given us minds and given us hearts and given us wills. We're thankful that you treat us as you created us. That you do not do an end around our minds, you do not outflank our hearts, you do not force our wills. Rather, you present your truth to our minds. You grip our hearts, which encourages our wills to embrace you. We're thankful that our faith is faith. We're also thankful that it is a reasonable faith. We're thankful for the men and women and children that have preceded us and believed this truth and have carried it forward, ones that have passed it on to our generation, and we pray that we would be those who pass it on to the generation after us, for truly there is no hope apart from this gospel truth. We pray that where there is doubt in our minds that you would root it out, where there is unbelief in our hearts that you would stamp it out, where there is unbelief in this room that you would pour out your grace, and you would give the gift of faith. Truly, there is no better place to be than in the hands of Christ, looking to Him in faith, united with Him in His life, death, burial, and resurrection, and even now seated and throned above with Him. What a gift we have been given in our Savior. It's in His name we pray. Amen.